According to the Bible, being alive is not simply about having a pulse. It's not simply about taking in oxygen and having discernible neurological activity. Life is not merely a physical phenomenon. It is, according to the scriptures, a spiritual one. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller. Glad you're with us as we continue our series, The Unsearchable Riches of Christ. And Jonathan, as you just pointed out, there is more to being alive than just being able to take a breath, to have a heartbeat. You said it's not just a physical thing, but there's also a spiritual component to that. Uh, if you would for a second, what do you mean by there is a spiritual element to being alive? Well, it's a remarkable thing that the Bible highlights for us and really insists upon for us. And it is this idea that because of our rebellion against God as the whole of humanity, we are born as people who are physically alive, but actually spiritually dead because we are not right with the God who made us. Now, that seems counterintuitive to us, but the Bible says that is our reality. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. We just had this conversation a night or two ago with our seven-year-old, and he was beginning to try and wrestle through that concept where Jesus uh, sits down, he's talking with Nicodemus, and Jesus says, you must be born again. And, you know, it was interesting to try and be able to put that into words that a seven-year-old could grasp. How would you explain that to a child? It's interesting. I mean, we've had similar conversations with our own kids at home, and some of those conversations are ongoing. But at the root of it, we need to understand that we are more than simply physical beings. There's more to us than just what we see and feel. We, we're spiritual beings. And it's possible for us to be physically full of life and vitality, but spiritually to be actually entirely dead. And I, I think Kids can come to see that. I'm, I'm sure you've had great conversations at, at home, Steve. As adults, though, I, I, I think we can come to see it as well when we recognize something of our own spiritual need. And there may be those who are listening today and you have a sense of this within your own heart. There is a spiritual need within and, and something needs to happen. Something needs to change. Well, that's part of what we're going to be looking at in today's broadcast. So if you can, grab a Bible. Join us in the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 2 as we begin the message brought from death to life. Here is Jonathan. Well, I think the autumn of 2018 will be remembered as an autumn of very great storms. Hurricane Florence, Hurricane Michael, and closer to home, of course, the Ottawa tornadoes. As these storms recede into memory and the clear-up progresses, stories are going to emerge of near misses and of heroic rescues. And for those whose lives have been threatened and spared in these storms, there will be a process involved in coming to terms with what has taken place. There's a dawning realization of just how dangerous the situation really was. You come out of your basement and discover that your home is gone. You go back to your car and you see a shaft of wood driven through the windscreen in front of your seat. As I've seen in one photograph, perhaps you've seen it as well from Florida in the aftermath of the storm. And if someone has intervened to help you and to rescue you, well, you reflect and you understand just what they've done for you, just what they've given you. 
Here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul wants to sit each one of us down, each of us who has been rescued by Jesus Christ. He wants to sit us down and explain to us just what has taken place in our lives if we belong to Him. He wants us to understand just what Jesus has done for us, to comprehend the danger of our former predicament and the extent of the great rescue that has been achieved. And he wants us to appreciate the wonder of what we have been given in new life. You may remember that back in chapter 1, we followed Paul's prayer where he asked that the believers would know God better. And in particular, verse 19 of chapter 1, that we would know God's incredibly, incomparably great power. And Paul showed us at the end of chapter 1 how that great, that incomparably great power of God raised Christ from the grave and seated Him on high. And now here in chapter 2, Paul shows us how that very same power has been at work in us, in our salvation story. Now, whether Paul's prayer formally continues here in chapter 2 isn't totally clear. Is he still praying? Is he still reporting on his prayer? That's not totally clear. But he's writing in the same spirit and in the same line of thought as we enter chapter 2. He longs that we would fully grasp all that God has done for us and is doing in us. Here in these verses, Paul lays out for us the story of our rescue, and he begins by reminding us of our natural condition apart from Christ, of just how bad things were. Verses 1 to 3, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. The Bible's verdict on fallen humanity is very sobering, and perhaps to some of us it is very surprising. Apart from Christ, says Paul, we are spiritually dead people. Now, I say that's a surprising verdict, and in a very, very real sense, I think it is. After all, those around us who don't know Jesus Christ, who haven't trusted in Him and in His gospel, as far as the eye can see, those people are very much alive. Our friends and our neighbors, they may lead very active and full lives with interesting pursuits and rich relationships and busy careers. To call them dead, as Paul does here, seems not only morbid, but positively inaccurate. We may think of some Christians we know who live rather subdued and perhaps seemingly rather inactive lives, and then we picture some vigorous non-Christian friends, and it's hard to square what Paul is saying here. Those who have a medical background will tell us that there are various tests and criteria involved in determining if a person is alive or dead, of determining if a person on life support is still truly alive or is actually brain dead. That can be a complicated matter. But it is nonetheless psychologically and physiologically discernible. But according to the Bible, being alive is not simply about having a pulse. It's not simply about taking in oxygen and having discernible neurological activity. Life is not merely a physical phenomenon. It is, according to the Scriptures, a spiritual one. According to the Bible, life is fundamentally about having a vital relationship with God our Creator, who is Himself the source and the sustainer of all true life. 
Now, to understand this, to wrap our heads around this, we need to remember the Bible's wider storyline just for the minute, and in particular, its opening chapters. You'll remember what happened in the Garden of Eden. It's a familiar story. God created the man and the woman and gave them life in His presence. But He warned Adam and Eve very clearly that if they disobeyed Him from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, well, they would die. And so when they did indeed eat of that tree, they were cast out of God's presence in the garden and they died spiritually. Now, the physical implications of that spiritual death followed more slowly. They didn't come immediately. Their bodies began a process of decline, the process that ends for each one of us in the grave. Spiritual death led only slowly to physical death. And Paul wants us to understand that apart from Christ, each one of us was spiritually dead. He wants us to know that apart from Christ, the people around us each and every day, the people we interact with and engage with, our friends and our relatives, our neighbors and our peers, they are spiritually dead even as they physically live. He wants you to know if you're not a Christian believer here this morning, however good your health is, however vibrant and full your life is, you are actually dead in spiritual terms, even as you live. Now, that is a very sobering thought. If you're not a believer, that is something for you to grapple with very, very seriously. Perhaps it shocks you. Or, or maybe, as you reflect upon it, it actually makes sense of how you feel in some ways. It actually accounts for a sense of emptiness that you recognize and that you experience in your life. And in any case, it's something that you now need to reckon with very seriously, even as you consider your own response to Jesus Christ. We said a moment ago that spiritual life and spiritual death are essentially relational matters. They have to do with our relationship with our Creator. And now in verse 2, Paul brings that relational focus into view, but he shows us another side of it, the darker side of it. And he says this, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. I think we'd rather not think about it too much, and we might prefer to disbelieve it, but the Bible tells us very clearly that there is a personal enemy of God's at work in the world. His name is Satan. And his kingdom is set against God's kingdom. And he is personally set against God and against the people of God. And here Paul tells us that those who are spiritually dead, those who do not belong to Jesus Christ, are actually, even if unwittingly, following this ruler, this ruler of a spiritual kingdom, this ruler of the kingdom of the air. Satan is spiritually at work in unbelievers. It's a frightening thought, isn't it? End of verse 2, that Satan is actively at work in the hearts of unbelievers. But there it is. That's what Paul says. That's the spiritual reality according to the Scriptures. Some here will have had that very unsettling experience of having their computer hacked 
or having fallen victim to cyber fraud. Someone sends you an email, perhaps under the name of a, a trusted friend, and they invite you to open an attachment or to go to a particular website. Perhaps they want you to send information or even money to them. We've actually had that going on here at the office at church. Someone has been setting up fake email accounts actually in my name and then emailing around the staff with pleas for money. I'm trying not to take it too, I promise it wasn't me. I'm trying, <laughs> I'm trying not to take it too personally that no one felt inclined to send the money that was asked for. <laughs> Fortunately, everyone recognized it was a fraud. But it is unsettling to be taken in even if for a brief while. And if that happens, you, you look back and you think, I've just played into the hand of a malicious person with evil intent. I've been taken in. I've been caught up in something very malicious, very dark. And Paul says, that's what's happened to each of us. That's what each of us has done. We've played in to the devil's hand, and we've followed his ways. We have, verse 3, gratified the cravings of our sinful nature, said yes to our appetites and our desires without any real thought to right and wrong, without a concern to honor God, without a concern to obey his word. And so with all the others who did this, end of verse 3, we were by nature objects of wrath. Living in such a way as part of such a kingdom, we were doomed to destruction at the final judgment because we deserve that judgment. Now, it's all very sobering. We've said that. Sobering as we consider the danger we were in. Sobering as we consider the spiritual state of so many people all around us. It's sobering stuff, but Paul's main purpose here is not to depress us. That's not what he's trying to do. No, his aim is actually to fill our hearts with gratitude. Gratitude as we remember what we once were and when we realize fully what God has done for us. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message called Brought from Death to Life. As we're taking a look today, at the first 10 verses of Ephesians in chapter 2, Paul is laying out the story of our rescue in this passage, and we're going to get back to this in just a moment. By the way, if you are looking for some additional encouragement from Jonathan, we've got a weekly devotional that we post on our website. If you've not seen it before, I'd encourage you to check it out. Simply come to EncounterTheTruth.org and then click on the link that says Moment of Truth. That is our weekly devotional, and we'd be so encouraged to share that with you. Again, that's EncounterTheTruth.org and click on Moment of Truth. All right, back to the message. Once again, here is Jonathan. And so having shown us so clearly what was our natural condition, Paul now turns to God's gracious intervention in our lives. Verse 4, but because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. One of the great emphases in Ephesians so far has been the sovereign initiative of God in our salvation. It's been quite humbling for us, actually, as we've taken this in. As Paul's reminded us again and again and again that our salvation was not our plan, and it was not our achievement, but it was all of God. It was all of grace. And Paul drives that message home again here. We were dead, thoroughly dead in spiritual terms. We were following this wayward ruler. We were living a pattern of disobedience 
against God. And yet, despite all that, in the midst of such hopelessness, God intervened and He did something astonishingly kind. And He did it, Paul tells us, because of His great love for us. Now, we need to just pause there and let that truth sink in for a moment. We talk about a lot of different characteristics of God. We talk about His holiness, His justice, His wisdom, His faithfulness, and all of them are beautiful and perfect and good. But there is hardly a truth about God that is more precious to us than this simple truth that He loves us. It's probably the first truth we learn about Him. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It easily rolls off the tongue. But I do wonder if you and I really know it and really believe it today. I hope you do. I hope you can take this in as I say it. God loves you. God loves you very much. God loves you more than you can ever know. He loves you more and better than anyone has ever loved you or will love you. Now, I'm pausing to underline that point and to emphasize that point because we all desperately need to know that we're loved, don't we? It's so important for us. We see the importance of that for children. You see a child who's been well-loved, and you see the fruit of that in their development, their freedom, their confidence, their joy. And sometimes, tragically, we see children, don't we, who haven't been loved, who haven't had parents who told them that they love them, who show them that they love them, and the damage of that, it is just dreadful. It's devastating, and it's lifelong in many ways. As human beings, we need to know that we are loved. We all need that, but for some here, the need to know true love and experience loving relationships, well, that is a desperate need because for one reason or another, in your life experience, you haven't known many relationships like that. Perhaps you have struggled throughout your life with a sense of being unloved. And actually, the truth be told, it is a massive burden that you carry. And so for you, for all of us, how wonderful it is to know that the creator of the universe loves us, really loves us, genuinely loves us, deeply loves us. He loves us so much that He met us in our rebellion and in our foolishness and our waywardness. And in mercy, verse 4, spared us the judgment we deserve and instead made us alive with Christ. Sometimes we'll talk about God's love when we outline the gospel. Sometimes we will think about His mercy. Sometimes we'll reflect upon His amazing grace. Those are all very big and very rich gospel words. And those features of God's disposition toward us in Christ, His love, His mercy, His grace, they're all wonderful. They're all interwoven, and they each one bear a tremendous weight of gospel meaning. But as Paul considers the theme of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, he gets carried away, doesn't he? And he just piles all these terms on top of one another. In verses 4 and 5, they're all there. Out of love, God sent His Son into the world to be our Savior. 
in His mercy, God refrains from punishing us as our sins so richly deserve. He refrains from pouring out His wrath upon us, but instead He takes our guilt upon Himself in the person of His Son, and He bears that punishment in our place. And in His grace, He gives us new life. He gives us a future, an eternal inheritance. In fact, Paul says, as we're joined together with Jesus, as we're one with Christ by His Spirit, there is a real sense in which you and I have already entered into that future, a future of grace, a future that we don't deserve. Verse 6 is a highly intriguing verse. We could have spent all morning on verse 6, but it speaks of the reality of being united to Christ as Paul tells us that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the eternal realms in Christ Jesus. That's a statement to stretch our thinking to the very limit and beyond. Even as we live here below as the church of Jesus Christ, since we are joined to the Savior, we are at the same time with Him above. Here's what God's power has achieved. Here is what God has done for us in His great love. It's a stunning portrait of God's gracious work, His saving work, His wonderful rescue. And Paul is very concerned as we come to grips with these things to show us that it really is all God's work. But at the same time, he does slip in a reminder of how we become beneficiaries of this salvation, how this salvation came to us if we're believers. He reminds us that there is a necessary response, and we turn to that verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast." You'll notice that in reminding us of our necessary response to the grace of God, here in verse 8, Paul lays considerable emphasis on how it is that we are not saved. He emphasizes the negative. Salvation is not from ourselves. It is not by works so that no one can boast. When I'm talking to folks from outside Canada, perhaps when traveling to the U.S. or talking with friends in the U.K., I tell them that we live in Ottawa, and I frequently find myself reminding them that Ottawa is actually the capital of Canada. I like to just get that detail in there, not Toronto, as they so frequently think. It seems to be an almost universal assumption that Toronto is the national capital. Having grown up in Toronto, I have some sympathy with the idea, but it is a common misconception. And I find it's usually just helpful to clear away the misinformation as quickly as possible. Now, when talking about the way in which we are saved, Paul finds it necessary here and elsewhere to clear away the big misconception that it seems almost everyone holds, the idea that we are saved by good works. It's the default assumption of the human heart to think that we are saved by doing certain things, by keeping certain rules, by performing certain rites and rituals. And that's the principle, that's the belief that stands behind basically every world religion. Do certain things, behave a certain way, participate in certain rites and rituals, keep certain rules, and you will be acceptable to the divine. You will be saved. 
And so even though Paul has been at such pains already in Ephesians 1 and 2 to drive home the point that salvation is all God's work, even though he has said it so clearly already, he feels the need to lay it out again here. We are not saved by anything of our own doing. It is all of grace. Jonathan Griffiths with a message called Brought from Death to Life. A look at the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to pause here, but we'll continue this message on our next broadcast. Hope you make it a point to listen. Hey, today is the final day to give a gift of any amount and request a copy of Jonathan's brand new book. It's called God Alone, His Unique Attributes, and How Knowing Them Changes Us. In this book, Jonathan shows us how God alone can transform us at a root level. And we'd love to send you a copy of this book as our way of saying thank you for your financial support. Find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884 or EncounterTheTruth.org. Thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll join us next time.